This sermon, Our Comforting and Redeeming God, was preached by guest speaker Frank Lundy on Sunday, November 19th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Like Tom said, we're from Gilbert, Arizona. We've been there since 2014, my wife and I, and we love Sovereign Grace Churches. We love the partnership. We love the interdependence, uh, which is one of our shared values as a denomination because we get to do things like this, uh, man each other's pulpits, uh, come and meet you dear folks, and I'd love to take time after the service to meet all of you because I think that could be possible with, with a church this size, so I'd love to do that. Um, also, the Pastor's College was a formative experience. We spent 10 and a half months in Louisville, Kentucky. It's pronounced Louisville. Uh, it's very interesting. You want to say Louisville or Louisville, but the locals, they will correct you and say it's Louisville. Um, so that's what we learned while we're there, one of the many interesting things. Uh, my wife and I, our marriage, it really was shaped and formed in our time there. Um, parenting skills were sharpened as I got to learn from the men that I was with at the pastor's college and the decades of experience of the pastors that served there. And um, I won the Humility Award, <laughs> you know. Okay. So there's that. I lost it. Okay. I forfeited the award. <laughs> but it is a privilege to be here serving you all. Um, so I'd like to get right into the text this morning, if you all don't mind. It will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the passage that I'm going to preach this morning, it's intended for those who might be currently suffering, experiencing any sort of pain or affliction in your life. But I also think that this passage can help equip those who aren't currently suffering to be prepared for when suffering comes. Because it's inevitable, suffering will come knocking at your door. Now, my goal here to do this, we have to begin by characterizing what suffering is and what it isn't. Then I'll move forward with a definition. But first, let's start with what suffering isn't. Suffering is not prejudiced. It's unbiased. It doesn't discriminate based on color. There are no racial disparities to consider when it comes to suffering. It doesn't hold grudges doesn't pass over certain people and attack others. No one is exempt from the reaches of suffering. Also, suffering has no political affiliation. You're not exempt if you're Republican or a Democrat. You're not exempt if you're Libertarian or Independent. And likewise, suffering doesn't operate according to our economy. There's no amount of money that you can throw at your suffering to buy your way out of the inevitability of suffering. Now, to get a bit more granular and perhaps cheeky, you're not suffering when you're waiting in a long line at the grocery store or you're stuck in traffic. I don't even know if you guys have traffic here in Tucson. Do you all struggle with traffic? And although it might feel like it in the moment, you're not suffering, I promise you, you're not suffering when you're at Starbucks and instead of getting the caramel macchiato that you so longed for, you get a vanilla latte with some sort of tree nut milk in it, as if trees can produce milk. 
Sorry, that's a dig at those who might like tree nut milk. That's not suffering, even though it might feel like it. So what is suffering? Let's move towards a definition. Suffering is this. It's the painful experience of living in a world that's been marred by the fall. For some here this morning, this might mean having lost a family member recently. For others, it might be learning from your physician that you've been diagnosed with cancer. Or perhaps a family member has been diagnosed with cancer. It might mean hearing of someone you love and care for, perhaps led to the Lord, that they have recently decided to deconstruct in their faith. Suffering might be the depression you battle, the mental illness that seems to keep you down morning after morning, and you just can't seem to shake it. It could mean living in the aftermath of a relationship that you once cherished, you loved this individual, but since sin has rendered that relationship asunder. It could be hearing from your spouse, they no longer want to be married to you. Or it could be the anxiety you experience as you begin to think of bills that need to be paid and debts that are mounting. I'm sure all of us could go on and on and come up with a laundry list of ways that suffering comes at us. Because suffering comes at us from many different angles. And it hits us from many different directions. And friends, this is because there's an inevitability to suffering. It's universal. It's pervasive in our world, and it presents us with quite the dilemma. Nobody wants to go through suffering. Nobody's waking up in the morning praying, Lord, I'd love to suffer for your glory today. It's just not a prayer that we pray. No, we live in a world that cringes at the S word. This world is filled with people who will go to great lengths to avoid their suffering. Gyms and pharmacies are seemingly on every major intersection in cities. The healthcare industry props up our economy like no other industry does. Why? Because people will go to great lengths to avoid their suffering. The world's message on suffering is to run from it, escape, get away at all costs. And every one of us can be tempted to believe that message. But here's the question I want to pose for us. What does God say about our suffering? This is our big idea for this morning. If there's anything that you walk out of those double doors with, I pray, I do pray, it's this. Suffering is never random, and it is powerful in the hands of a comforting and redeeming God. Suffering is never random. And it is powerful in the hands of a comforting and redeeming God. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1. Begin reading at verse 3. I believe that God's word shows us that suffering is not arbitrary. God uses our suffering to help us shed the veneer that we have it all together. God uses our suffering to teach us 
that we need to stop pretending like we are something. We need to rely on him. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. May it have its intended effect on us this morning. Amen. First point for us to consider, suffering reveals God's character. What Paul does in the, is in the beginning here in this introduction is he breaks out in praise in verse 3 when he writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he acknowledges God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Like he does in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul here in this letter begins with God. And in the opening benediction here, he moves even further by elaborating on exactly who God is. God is a father who provides comfort and mercy, not just some comfort, not just a modicum of comfort, but he's the God of all comfort. Paul focuses his reader's attention on the very intentional care God is eager to give to his people. Essentially, we can say that Paul begins with a warm and fuzzy introduction, a beginning that has all the feels, but it doesn't stay this way. Throughout this chapter, and even this entire letter, suffering is a prominent theme. Why does Paul include suffering as such a prominent theme? Well, God, being the God of comfort, wasn't an abstract truth for Paul. He lived being comforted by God. He lived through experiencing God's unique comfort that he gives to his people. There was a very real circumstance that led to Paul's suffering. We learn more about this in verse 8, which in turn led to the comfort Paul received from God. Paul wants his readers to know that God comforts the suffering saint. And Paul knows this because he experienced God's comfort firsthand. 
This is because God, he's concerned with what ails us. He's not a God of deism who stands far off, looks at us while we're in trouble, and says, good luck with that. God is near to us in our time of need. He is an ever-present help in our time of need. Though we live in a broken and fallen world, one in which suffering seems all too often to get the upper hand, God enters into our suffering, and he brings comfort to those who suffer. He sustains us in our suffering. This question is for those here who might be suffering right now. Are you experiencing anguish, pain? Are you experiencing hurt? Are you feeling weary from living in a fallen and broken world? God's message here is that he's eager to comfort you. It's his disposition. His character is that of a helper and a comforter. This is exactly why he's given us the Holy Spirit, who the Bible refers to as our helper in verses like John 14, 16. Friends, we can find ourselves at so many times in life in need of help, and it's the heart of our comforting God to provide us with help by his Spirit. And whether you're in a season of suffering right now or not, we should all take a lesson from this passage. When we contemplate all the hard things placed in our lives, we should begin at a place of blessing God. When we think about all the hard things we go through, we should be praising him for being our God and our Father, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We should be more prone to praise God for his goodness than we're prone to feel sorry for ourselves or complain about the circumstances we might find ourselves in. That's a hard pill to swallow. We should be more prone to praise God, to bless him, than we are to complain about our circumstances. When we suffer, we're also equipped to comfort others, which leads us to verse 4 and to our next point. Suffering equips us to comfort others. Paul takes time here to remind the Corinthians of the nature and character of God. God is good. He's a father. He comforts. He's the God of mercy. And he loves us enough to provide us with comfort when we're hurting. Perhaps this is why Paul includes the word comfort some 10 times in this passage. And what Paul does under the inspiration of the Spirit, he has another message for the Corinthians. It's not only that God provides us with comfort, but there's also a sense in which comfort goes through Paul to the Corinthians. Verse 4 reads, God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul's telling this dear church that the comfort he has received it's meant to be paid forward. We're not to be hoarders of comfort, stacking our comfort in silos for a rainy day. We're meant to be conduits of comfort to those who are hurting. Murray Harris, who wrote a commentary on 2 Corinthians, he aptly comments on this when he writes, the spiritual principle he or Paul is enunciating 
is that Christians experience of God's help, consolation, and encouragement in the midst of life's afflictions constantly qualifies and empowers them to communicate divine comfort to others who face troubles of any variety. I believe what he's getting at is our suffering qualifies us to speak comfort into the lives of others. We don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to have gone to the pastor's college. You don't need a counseling degree to provide comfort to the hurting. All that's required is having lived in a fallen and broken world, having experienced affliction and suffering. These bring empathy to the comforted sufferer. And these are what certify us as believers to provide comforting words to those who need to hear them. You know this if you've suffered the loss of a loved one or if you've experienced God comfort you in in unique ways. You know that someone who's going through something similar, you know exactly what they need to hear because God has comforted you by his word. Now you might be asking yourself, what does this look like practically? What does this look like for me, boots on the ground? Well, it could be meeting with someone over coffee who has recently lost a family member. It might be testifying to the comfort that you've received from the Lord when you lost a family member. It also might look like sharing a meal or spending time with a woman who's had a miscarriage because you at one point in time also had a miscarriage. But God saw you through. He met all of your needs. And you have a story to testify to of God's comforting grace. There are countless ways this takes place in the life of the church. And I'm sure you here at Sovereign Grace Tucson are already doing this. But we need our church family to speak words of life when it feels like we're at the brink of death. Don't ever minimize what you might have to offer the body of Christ by a word of encouragement or by sharing a scripture because the comfort God has given to you can and should be passed along to others. As we move on in this passage, verse 5 shows us how Paul addresses suffering as being what we share abundantly in Christ. Third point is suffering enriches our intimacy with Christ. As Paul, I, I can just imagine, as Paul is writing these words, this, this verse in verse 5, it's possible he's reminded of a truth that should devastate each one of us. The holy Christ of God, the perfect sinless Son, he suffered for sinners like you and me. His suffering led to his death. And it was the first time in human history a man did not deserve to die. It should have been us. It should have been us hanging on the tree. We should have been the ones feeling the brutal, crushing weight of God's pure, unadulterated wrath poured out on our shoulders. But it was Christ, in divine love, who was suspended in our place. The sinless, suffering substitute 
hanging for wretched sinners. A little bit later in this letter, in chapter 5, we find that wonderful verse, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse, this verse should remind us of that great exchange. God crushed his son so we could become sons and daughters of God. In the midst of our suffering, and even when we're not suffering, we can never move on too quickly from this truth. We never graduate from the gospel. We have to marinate in it. Let's not, never think that we've arrived and we no longer need to marvel at the grace of God that was shown to us in the suffering and death of the Son of God. Because God, in his infinite care and goodness towards us, wants to really reveal to us in this text that suffering has an intended effect. It's meant to do something in us, to produce something. Paul writes, For as we share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is a promise for every believer. If you're in Christ, this is a promise for you. Our union to Christ in both his death and resurrection brings a glorious truth. Not just for the future. We do have future hope. We do. It's glorious. But there's help for us in our present suffering. We're given comfort by the Lord who himself has suffered on our behalf. When we read this verse, it's as if Paul wants his readers to understand an important fundamental truth about the Christian life. And that's this. If suffering was a reality for Jesus, it's also a reality for everyone who serves the Lord Jesus. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Paul Barnett states, the apostles' sufferings listed in the letter should be seen as replicating the sufferings of Christ by, as it were, a principle of divine inevitability. Just as the one who God sent suffered in and for a world alienated from God, so too the apostle of the sent one and the community of the sent one experience the pain of rejection in that same world as they bear witness to Christ. In fact, it was this sent one, Jesus Christ, who told his disciples in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those who serve Jesus will suffer like Jesus did. We won't be crucified, most likely, but if we're on mission with Jesus and we're spending ourselves for the sake of others, suffering will come our way. But this suffering, remember, it has an effect. It's intended to lead to divine comfort and, I think this is the most important truth, into deeper intimacy with Jesus you've ever suffered as a believer, then you experience the nearness of the Lord like no other. It's 
in those times of intense suffering where you need to hold fast. It's in those times when under great travail, only Jesus can see you through. That's what suffering does. The saint who trusts in the substitutionary death of Christ and who pursues godliness in this world will meet opposition. But we have a wonderful promise in this text that God will provide us with comfort. And we'll know God better through our suffering. Our last point is suffering deepens our dependence on God. Verses 6 through 7, they reiterate how suffering is to play a vital role in Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. In verse 6, we read of how Paul's suffering is for the comfort and salvation of the Corinthians. Notice how Paul doesn't promise them escape from suffering. I think that's what our culture likes to do. I even think the evangelical church has stepped into that realm of promising escape from suffering. But Paul doesn't hint anywhere of that. He doesn't claim that their suffering will be removed. In times when we're entrenched in deep anguish and pain, we do feel like it would be easier if God would just remove this thorn altogether. Instead, a corollary to the promise that God would provide comfort is that he would also provide the Corinthians with patient endurance while they suffer. What does this mean for us? Simply, it means that God will sustain you in your suffering. He'll provide you endurance as things in your world seem to be falling apart. As you're trying to make sense of the world around you, in the midst of your suffering... God will be with you. He'll provide everything you need along the way to patiently endure through the hardship. We see this in Psalm 34, 18, when the psalmist writes, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is near to you in your suffering, even if it feels like he's distant. As we continue in the text, verse 7 tells us that Paul had an unshaken hope for the Corinthians that they would share in the apostles' comfort. Something to note about Paul is he wasn't like the other preachers that the Corinthians had grown accustomed to, the other preachers that the Corinthians loved to hear about. You see, in that culture, in the, that ancient Grecian world, it was steeped in Hellenism. Uh, oratory skill was highly valued. But Paul didn't just strut into town to show off his fancy rhetorical skills and refined preaching ability. No, Paul's message is, I'm suffering for you. Friends, we never know when suffering is going to strike or who will be the next to suffer in our congregation. But your pastors are not exempt. As your pastors experience suffering in their families or in their ministry, God is going to use their suffering for your benefit. It might be through the loss of a loved one or the pain of having a child who's wandering from the faith. But God uses your pastor's suffering 
as comfort that's tailor-made for you. Nothing in the Lord's economy is wasted. He uses all things, including our suffering, for his glorious purposes and for our ultimate joy in him. Verse 8 gives us a small glimpse into Paul's suffering for the Corinthians. The suffering he references was so intense that it led Paul to write, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul was saying that he and his team were so weighed down by this affliction, this affliction in Asia, that commentators, there's a lot of different theories on what this affliction could be. But the real message is what comes next. He goes on to say how it caused him to feel as if he had received a death sentence from the Lord. Utterly burdened, despairing over life, and the reception of a death sentence. These are statements people don't make glibly. These are statements people make when in the grips of intense suffering and pain. Again, we don't know the specific affliction Paul endured in Asia, but with statements like this, we do know something of their intensity. By including the intensity of his suffering in verse 8, Paul is setting up the second half of verse 9, where we read the purpose of his suffering. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Suffering's a tutor. Suffering teaches us to rely on God in ways we might never know otherwise. I'm afraid one of the dangers of living in the West, in a church that is so steeped in prosperity, is we won't learn this principle, this rule of how suffering teaches us to rely on the God who raises the dead. That's a different sermon for a different day. I'm probably the least handy, let me just bring it back down to earth, I'm probably the least handy of any of you men in this auditorium, and possibly women. I can't fix things. You can ask my wife, I'm not very good. Actually, we just bought these uh, Blink um, home security things, and I think they're just adhesive. I haven't even taken them out of the box yet to put them up. That's how unhandy I am. I don't know how to build things, I don't know how to fix things. Um, But I do know, I do know one thing. You can't build furniture with wood that's not sanded. Nobody would want to buy a piece of furniture that has rough edges because you wouldn't want your child or yourself to run your hand along the side of the furniture and get poked, splinters. You wouldn't want that. Well, like extra coarse sandpaper or a file that's meant to grind away unwanted bumps and edges in the Lord's hands. Suffering is a tool. It's a tool that's fashioned to strip away all of the unwanted areas of your life. Suffering shows us that a pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality is not godly. 
If you're tempted to rely on your own strength, then you know all too well how futile it is to try to live in your own strength. When faced with your own suffering, you might be tempted to run to any number of things, to numb the effect of your suffering. These could include, but not, are not limited to, entertainment, hobbies or leisure. Maybe it's receiving counseling from people who aren't even believers, TikTok videos, self-help books, TED Talks. I'm not trying to knock those things. They, they might offer a little bit of comfort, a little bit of relief from your suffering, but they're not going to bring about ultimate comfort and relief. As Christians, we need to rely on the Lord's strength in all seasons of life, and especially while in affliction. Of all people, Paul The apostle par excellence, the Hebrew of all Hebrews, he needed to learn this lesson the hard way. He needed an affliction in Asia moment to teach him that he wasn't all that. It took despair. It took a death sentence to teach him how to fully trust in the God who raises the dead. He learned the very same lesson the writer of Hebrews refers to when he writes, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Suffering, like discipline, yields something to those who've been trained by it. To those who submit to its tutelage, suffering yields a resolute trust in God. This is the big idea Paul's getting at. The source of all our strength the wellspring where we find all of our thirst satisfied is found only in the God who raises the dead. But what about before suffering comes? What do we do? Because when things are going well and you're getting promoted at work, your marriage is going great, the kids are behaving, it's in these moments we don't really feel the need to have a theology of suffering. What do I mean by a theology of suffering? Well, a theology of suffering simply refers to what we believe about God when bad things happen. This is something we need because when suffering comes knocking at your door, you have to be equipped and ready to respond. Verse 9 helps to equip us because in it we see how God wants to use, wants us to see our suffering as a tool in his hands. He wants us to see that its intended effect is to make us rely on him alone, not on ourselves. God is dependable despite the hard things we go through. He alone can be trusted. Verse 10, Paul elaborates on exactly what to expect from the God who raises the dead. First, he writes about the deliverance that God provided to Paul and his team when in Asia. Then Paul confidently asserts that God will continue to provide deliverance in the present, present, and then he writes, on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul includes past, present, and future activities of deliverance that all come from the same source. They all come from the same place. The resurrecting power of God hope for deliverance for the apostle, for the Corinthians, and for us, 
is found preeminently in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the resurrection was the basis for Peter's hope in 1 Peter 1.3. And mind you, that was a letter he wrote to suffering Christians when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection, it should give each and every one of us great joy to ponder and to think about, but it also gives us great hope for deliverance. I'm not simply talking about temporal deliverance, which at times God does grant us by His grace. But our greatest hope is in our ultimate deliverance from the pangs of death and eternal judgment. For those who are in Christ Jesus, this deliverance, eternal deliverance, is something we can bank on. Verse 11 Paul summons the Corinthians to pray for him. We can even call this a call to intercessory prayer. This focused prayer that he desires is said to produce a blessing to Paul and those who are with Paul. I think there's a point of application here for us. When we hear of others in our local churches that are suffering, our first move should be to pray for them. should be to pray When you hear of someone who's going through something intense, through a hardship, through a difficulty, it can be tempting to want to talk and get all the details. And there's a place for that. There's a place for sharing and speaking into other people's lives. But I do believe what Paul is getting at here, and the Holy Spirit through Paul, is we should be more moved to pray for people than to talk about them. We should be moved to intercede for those we care for and love, to see God work on their behalf. Friends, God doesn't leave us to deal with suffering on our own. Zooming out 15,000 feet, looking at this passage, it's set in the context of one another. He's writing to a church. He's writing to a family of believers who care for one another. He's calling them to remember the God of all mercy, our Father. He's calling them to place their hope not in themselves, not in deliverance over their temporal circumstance, but in their ultimate deliverance, which comes through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling a church to pray. God doesn't leave us to deal with suffering on our own. He's given us the gift of one another. We're not left without a powerful weapon to help us while we do suffer. And that's the weapon of intercessory prayer. There's no course that can be taught on intercessory prayer. The best way to engage in this and to grow in this is by praying. So in conclusion, we have a lot to consider. This is a passage that is jam-packed with a lot of truth. Overall, suffering plays an important role in the Christian life. 
We've learned it's our tutor. It helps us to know God's character. It provides us with an opportunity to comfort others, to live the Christian life walking alongside other believers. It enriches our intimacy with Christ because as we suffer, we experience the Lord's comfort in no, like no other way. And it deepens our dependence upon God. These are all great things if you're a Christian. But if you're not a believer, what about you? Perhaps you're listening to this sermon and you think that all this talk about suffering sounds pessimistic, sounds drab. I don't want to hear about suffering at church. Sounds bleak. You might not be a Christian and you could find yourself thinking, why would I want to serve a God who's not going to take away my suffering? Why would, I, why would I willingly choose to do that? That's a valid question. If you're thinking that, that is a valid question. It's a question that theologians have struggled with for centuries. But here's one thing I do know. If you feel the weight of your own suffering, only Jesus can bear it for you. If you feel the sins of others that have been directed at you, well, there's one who knows that experience, and that's Jesus. The innocent Son of God was crushed under the weight of your sins and my sins. His death is the highest display of the good purposes of God because by his death and his resurrection, you can be made right with God. There's no other way to be made right with God. Those who place their faith and trust in him are promised eternal comfort. They're promised rest from their pain and suffering. However, Apart from him, you'll never know what it means to be eternally freed from your suffering. If you don't know this Jesus, please, I urge you, talk with someone who does know Jesus. If you're not a Christian, talk with someone who invited you. Talk with someone who does walk with Jesus. Ask them what it's like to live a life of faith. And I'm sure that individual would be more than willing to walk you through that. Talk with one of the pastors here. Talk with me after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to follow him. But if you are a believer, I pray that this message helps you see the immeasurable worth of having a theology of suffering in place before affliction strikes. thinking about in World War II how advantageous it would have been for the Allied forces to have had radio systems set up prior to the bombing of London. Lives would have been saved. Having a strategy before affliction strikes is wise. All of us at some point in our lives, all of us will have an affliction in Asia moment. 
There will, be, there will come a time when something hard happens in your life. You'll be sent reeling in despair. It's in times like these, our faith is challenged and tested and confronted like no other. So if you're tempted to run from suffering, run to Jesus instead. His arms are outstretched. His heart is for you. He wants to help you and hold you while you walk through hardship. Through the very hardship, he's appointed in your life to make you love him more and to depend on him in deeper, more substantial ways had you never suffered. Horatio Spafford, if that name is not familiar to you, was a man who had a robust theology of suffering. He understood the sentiment of this passage when he wrote the famous hymn, It Is Well. If you don't know his story, after having lost their four-year-old son to scarlet fever, he decided that his wife and their four little girls should vacation to England in 1871 and that he would follow them shortly after, after finishing up some business matters at home. On the boat that his wife and their four little girls were on, as it was traveling, it was involved in a collision and it sank in the Atlantic Ocean. And in the process, Spafford and his wife lost their four little girls. But in the aftermath of this tragedy, he wrote these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows come, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friend, if you're now in a season of prosperity and security or in a season, a season of suffering in Christ, we know it is well with our souls because only in Him have we received eternal comfort for our soul's greatest need. Again, suffering is never random. It's powerful in the hands of a comforting and redeeming God. Let's pray.